So that's that's me trying to give some words to this stuff. <laughs> and um, yeah, no. is there are things you'd like to give words to, or point to, or explore, or discuss together, then please feel free. Yeah, please. Just over here, at the back, against the wall there. Um, thank you very much. Remind me of your name? Uh, Susanna. Susanna. Hi, Martin. Mm. Um, so interestingly, as you were talking about um, impermanence, the ink in my pen ran out. <laughs> and I thought, okay, <laughs> we're looking at it. Um, that's the, the fine-grained book. Um, I, I do have a question around this. I, I think it was a beautiful presentation. Uh, I have a question, though, that's stuck to me a little bit. Maybe you can unstick it. Um, which is that because of the uh, global warming and the kind of the, the huge political divisions and the way people have gotten into reactive mode, and I, I would fair, fair to say I include myself and possibly some people here, that might be one or two. So there is, and also because a lot has shifted onto our phones, and so there's this continual stimulation and busyness. Mm. Um, one teacher I know said, busyness is the new laziness in, in terms of practice. Mm. Here, here's my point. It's not just that attention is a disappearing resource in the face of all this. It's that fundamental trust. You know, what some, some people call the unshakable confidence or this trust that, yes, just trust presence. Just mm. trust that. So in an era where that is actually really harder and harder to sustain. That I didn't quite trust. follow you there. I don't know, why is it harder to sustain? I really honestly think that some of the people I know feel that they can't control their attention, that they really, mm. you know, if a thought comes up in a meditation, I must race to take it down, or I must pick up that phone, mm. or I must respond to that signal. There's a kind of disappearance of that trust in, in presence. I can stay with this. I can stay with this. Okay, and so I'm a little reluctant to talk about some people you know. Okay. Because right? it's a little abstract. Yeah, right? it is a little abstract. So, so let's not worry too much about the some people okay, you good. know right now. Good. What about yourself? Yeah, I would say definitely me. Absolutely, uh -huh. Uh -huh. yeah. So, really? If you feel like your, the, how you're using your attention, mm -hmm. we spoke about the three ways attention can move, right? Right. Uh, compulsion by mm -hmm. habit and by practice. Right. And definitely phones uh, get hold of the first two easily. Right. right? Compulsion because they're d designed. I just had a really interesting conversation with Tristan Harris last week. Do you know who Tristan Harris is? No. He's this guy. He, d he was in very early involved in the tech companies of oh. designing you know, technology to be addictive yeah. on phones. And then he's become this kind of well-known whistleblower, like saying how alarming it is, how, how that design is conscious. It's not even nefarious necessarily, right? But if YouTube notice is that the engagement, the amount of time people spend on YouTube has dropped by 10%, then they engage all their algorithms to figure out why and to get it back up again. And so he says, we're bringing this paleolithic tool of our brains to to the battle 
against the, the biggest supercomputers the world's ever known, right? That's the, that's the scale that we're working at. And he's got designing because we want us, the business model depends on us being fixated, right? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of going in to our attention going there by compulsion and by habit. And then the, we follow the compulsion enough, the compulsion becomes a habit, right? So you find every, oh, attention just keeps going to the phone. You just looked at it five minutes ago. There's probably nothing new. And even if there is nothing new, so fucking what? Right? But still, let me look, just in case. So, if you're a practitioner, I would say if you notice that degrading effect on your attention, take care of your attention. It's the most precious resource you have. Right? So we can say, oh, well, the world is degrading attention and some people can't stop. Never mind. Take care of your attention. I couldn't agree more. Any ideas? <laughs> Just, you know, like fasts? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm actually really curious. What would you suggest? Well, there's a, there's a lot of resources out there for those kind of things. One thing you can do, do you have an iPhone? Do you have an iPhone? Yeah, I do. Check this out. Do you know this? <laughs> no, Hold I on. didn't. Okay. You see that? Yeah. It's all gone black and white. It's so boring in black and white. There's oh. no buttons. <laughs> There's no, so you can turn that feature on, right? I've got it activated so I can do it with three clicks of my thing. I can toggle between color mode yeah. where it tells me all the little red buttons that think are very compelling or black and white mode. And then suddenly it's like, oh, nothing to see here. <laughs> Is it like, really, look, can you see? It really makes a difference. So that's, you know, but you can find there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff out there. I don't want, I don't want to, you know, give you yeah. some sort of downloaded article from, but um, it's also very interesting, pretty much everything I've read of people who really feel like their phones are really degrading their quality of attention, mm -hmm. who have just decided to stop. They just stop using the phone. They find it inconvenient in various ways, but they find themselves I mean, really measurably happier. I'm really thinking about it, actually. If you know your attention is your most important resource, it is absolutely. So, if you that's feel trust. like that's really degrading your attention, right? Take care of it. Mm, take care you. of your attention. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sure others can relate in various ways. Yeah. Please, uh, Mike. Mike. I can testify that I've recently turned the color off on my uh, iPad, <coughs> not on my phone, actually, but on the iPad. And it makes a very noticeable difference. Right. And I read uh, that uh, uh, editorial in the New York Times talking about breaking away from addiction to devices. And while he gave up on the um, turning the color off, he found that when he turned it back on again, it was incredibly irritating uh -huh. and, and, uh, and garish. And he wondered why they couldn't use more pleasant colors. Right. But I can testify that as far as a fast goes, I went through a 10-day Vipassana retreat, and about two weeks before the retreat, the Roseanne thing happened. And I saw that as a sign from the universe that I should pull the plug and start my fast early. So two weeks before the retreat, the 10-day retreat itself, and for about five days afterwards, slowly reacclimating. So I was effectively on a fast for like a month. 
So if I can do it, anyone can do it. Because mm -hmm. I don't have any willpower. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, please. I just wanted to say quickly that um, when you talked about acknowledging that people are right mm. or can be right, um, I, I, to do that, I have to know the context of their drawing. In other words, you know, if somebody is one way that I find reprehensible, I have to know the reference frame from which these things have come. I can't just say, oh, no. <laughs> great. Um, I, yeah, as I say that, I see the problem in that. Mm. What, why do you need the context? Well, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about some of the people who, you know, yell at the Trump rallies and stuff and mm. you know yeah and it used to make me just and I didn't like the way it was making me feel mm. and um, <coughs> I uh, but then I began to to sort of think about you know what their lives are like and what it must feel to live in this world mm -hmm. where you know it's very easy to feel marginalized even right. when you're not right and maybe that's enough context. Without yeah. even the detail of the context, basically right. the context is always that if somebody is caught in reactivity, they're suffering. That's the context, okay. right? If somebody's furious, angry, righteous, belligerent, judgmental, racist, da -da 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 -da, it's because they're, they're, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff they can't let in to their heart and a whole bunch of stuff that they just don't know how to manage internally in terms of their own you know feelings and so it spills out in all kinds of you know destructive ways painful ways unskillful ways cruel ways etc etc okay. and those things have real world consequences so we need to give attention to the detail yeah. and though if we're really going to give that attention that's for me that's the context in which one can see that they're right in their own world as i was saying earlier yeah, exactly. or one can see the humanity because it's oh right you know, if all that stuff's spilling out of them, what's happening inside of yeah. them? It's like just that's a painful condition to live in. Yeah. And when I see that that's a painful condition to live in, I know what it's like to live in a painful condition. I probably actually not, you know, in a very different scale to that person, but I still know what it's like to get pinched by reactivity or caught in fear. Yeah. And so, oh man, imagine that much reactivity, that much fear that much belligerence, that much anger, that much incapacity to take responsibility, that much need to blame, you know, right. X or Y. That must be hard. So that, I would say, is all the context one needs. Right? The context is, if someone's clinging, they're suffering. That's the Buddha's baseline context. That's sort of at the same time the, the spaciousness right. of the recognition. And just one other thing, um, which I... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> ah, thank you. Huh?
Hi. Um, I have also been thinking about this framing of uh, what if someone is right or, uh, and just really for me adding this question like what if is a very useful entry into any practice of non-othering. Mm -hmm. Like what mm -hmm. if when mm -hmm. I see you, I see you practicing what I'm practicing. Is, uh, that's basically a direct quote from a great choreographer named Deborah Hay who wrote a book called My Body the Buddhist, although she's not really a Buddhist mm -hmm. in, uh, of her own um, attestation. But what I, what I think is, to me there's maybe another level of the spacious view here, which is that the, yeah, there are particular things about this moment that we're seeing, but um, there's so much, uh, <laughs> so much history and so much precedent for the dehumanizing <laughs> and the subjugation and er all the seeds that have been sown that are, you know, have led to this moment. And um, I think your paradigm of kind of comparing it to like a personal relationship is that often in these contexts of having uh, compassion and um, the ability to not to, to sort of see oneself in another view or another action, even if an unskillful one, is also about having discernment. But when it's appropriate to not remain in that relationship. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when this discourse around, or when, when in particular in other, uh, you know, I have also heard other Dharma teachers approach this, <laughs> this uh, discussion, that when it's left to the realm of rhetoric or, or ideas or debates, it kind of misses out on the, you know, very real consequences and actual like life-threatening and uh, murderous consequences of a lot of wrongly held and delusional views and mm -hmm. dehumanization, mm -hmm. um, you know, and we could enumerate how that is. But I guess in that sense, I like to you know, m my sort of approach to the spaciousness of it is also to hold in my awareness, like when am I um, best positioned to stay in the relationship, whether it's a dialogue or through other actions, and when is it more skillful for me to step back? And not necessarily simply because I'm coming from a reactive place, but actually because of my very like embodied identity, mm -hmm. and that applies mm -hmm. to other people mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So I feel like there's like an important level of nuance in the relative realm that can sometimes be glided over when we talk about it in terms of like, oh, it's a debate or the ideas or the polarized system. It's like, no, it's actually like gender and race and poverty and, <laughs> you know, um, lack of protection and uh, willingness to subject people to violence and mm -hmm. endorse that or to actually enact violence. So I guess I just feel like to me, that adds another level of spaciousness to speak sometimes very directly to name some of those things right. um, and to hold that awareness that it's not always like what is the staying in the relationship could mean any number of things. Right. And most importantly, right. in relationship to one's own experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank that you. makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And also, I, you know, what I think in the way I was speaking about it in terms of the fine attention, you know, the real what you're calling the real world implications as well. You know, just because they're different views, it doesn't mean they're equal. Some yeah. views are writer, wiser, deeper, more compassionate, and therefore we g the uh, fine attention is making actions to to support the wiser view and the deeper view, right? And to to protect against the kind of the crueler view or the less compassionate view or the marginalizing view or the prejudicial view, etc. And 
maybe there's also a, sort of a semantic issue where we often use like right in in the framing of the Dharma to refer to something that is wise or skillful or compassionate or has a, yeah. an underpinning of sila, and that's not really what you're referring to in this right. context. And I think it's problematic language. I never use like, right view, right this, or it's also totally, uh, it's totally, it's n sama, which is the Pali construction. I was asked a Pali scholar about this uh, years ago. I said, what does sama actually mean? I was bhikkhu bodhi. And he says, really, it means to kind of, to cultivate or to bring to fulfillment. And it's very different, right? So that actually what the Eightfold Path is following, not having a right view and a right intention and right speech, and, but it's a path, right? The Eightfold Path doesn't sound like a path, right, right, right. It's a path of cultivating speech and cultivating your action and cultivating your lifestyle and cultivating your uh, meditation practice and cultivating your intentions. And that has a very, you know, much more nuance in that. And everybody's cultivating their stuff. It's just some people are cultivating in incredibly misguided ways, prejudicial ways, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much for that question. It's a good opportunity to uh, promote my various activities. If you look on my website, martinaylwood.com, there's hundreds of audio files on there. It's, it's, there's a, there's a, a link called uh, Listen, I think, Martin. Ah, listen, and then there's like a great long roll of, of t talks. My website's just in the process of being rebuilt and transitioned, and so I think in that process there may be a bit, a couple of things that aren't working very well at the this moment. Talks and the guided it's, I think so. It's most, mostly talks, I think, okay. but there's probably some guided meditation. Okay. So. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. a bunch of stuff on Dharma. And otherwise, there's yeah. probably yeah. about a hundred talks. Yeah, must be. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Thank you. Um, hello. Um, a bunch of different things, but, well, one piece about the, um, you know, I was just on this trip with you, didn't, wasn't on the internet very much, right? We'd get it at the hotels, and sometimes I'd get on it, but since I've been home, it's like crack. It's mm. like, and so the piece of what I feel after I've done that <laughs> There's just a lot, it's just so much sadness. Like, why did I just do that? And um, like sadness, shame, a lot of like judgment on myself. So just, I mean, you could, I guess you could apply that to many things we all do. <coughs> so just sort of that piece of, I mean, I try to, you know, it's kind of like feels badly that I think that, mm. you know, it's this, whatever, mm. the second arrow, but. Just so what's it deleterious to? So if you just like you know d that time that you may have what spent doing what looking at social media or yeah just like completely addict like I'm just so interesting after such the depth of our trip and the mm. so many things it's like needing that hit 
like mm, okay let me put another thing on instagram let me did how many like it's okay. just like so you go to instagram you were in the mountains <laughs> natural beautiful <laughs> wide open it's real so what we call real life right and then you come to new york yeah. and you go oh and then we call that not real life we call that social media or we sort of love it but we think it's disgusting as well in some way right because and then you go into and you go get into it for an hour or two or yeah. so three right no, no. okay yeah, but I can't, uh, okay I so mean, an hour just, or two i feel so much better not doing it it's like any i luckily in life haven't had other addictions right but that's what i want to get to because there's so nothing awesome. inherently one there's no right. difference i don't think really actually between looking at the himalayas and looking at a phone screen i don't really find much difference between the two right there's a there's a difference in affect right but everything you know everything has a distance in affect there's a difference in affect between cake and bread but we don't come here and fuss about the fact that there's cake in manhattan and it's just too stimulating and i wish there was only <laughs> bread right so the stimu <laughs> you do okay. So it's important. So we look at the Himalayas, and we're kind of the affect is is you know it's kind of peaceful and inspiring maybe, and when then we look at here, and the affect is a bit compelling and kind of more electric in some ways, right? But fundamentally, we're just engaging with experience, and there's an affect, right? That's the same in every moment. So, but it's so then it's interesting. You engage with this affect, and you feel you know. You feel yuck afterwards in some way. Disappointed so and sad. And it's not just the Himalayas. I mean, as you know, I'm a visual artist. I wake up in the morning and I, I, I can get so much uh -huh. from the video and the sound. So what is compelling when I do that? Like, well, so it's just so, yeah. I, that's what I'm interested in. Right. What is it that you're disappointed in? Because I'm wondering if, and I don't know, uh, that's why I'm asking. I'm wondering if there's something inherently disgusting about or, or sickening about Instagram, which is making you feel, uh, you know, it feels sick like and a needy, there's a neediness. There's a but that's grasping. not an Instagram. Right. The neediness okay. isn't an Instagram. But that's that's what we have. Now. That's our e because I'm not right. shooting up or you know maybe other people are using other things. Right. So I'm just getting to experience that. But so that's that's where I yeah. would really encourage right. you to look. Is it what is it, what's it actually doing? How much of it is in there? And if it is in there, stop looking at it. Really. And, uh, or, and, or, how much of it is some view that you're making more difference, maybe, than there really is between the two. And when you make more difference than there really is, that one, the view becomes, oh, there's something bad and wrong and nasty and, and compelling about that. But also, the very fact that you've made the difference is start what makes, it gives it that kind of taboo lure at the same time. Well, maybe it just makes me sad to not be present or in presence as you talk about like it was so, so wh why aren't you present? Why can't you be present while you're looking at Instagram? Well, it's you know, like I have had my phone turned off today while I'm here and I went to the park and I it was so great really looking at I saw so many things. Okay. I saw this father and his daughter's jumping rope and the smiling. I mean, it was like this huge world. Beautiful. But I <laughs> can't you see so many things here as well? So you're, it sounds to me like you're making, you're distorting the difference, right? And therefore, you, oh, no, oh, this is right, the park, this is proper life, this is good, this is good. And then, oh, 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 and you can't stop yourself. And then, 
And then you're giving away your presence when you go there because you've decided that it's sort of secret and shame or, or it's sort of nasty in it's some way. It's isolating an individual. It's not your. But not it doesn't have to be. Really, really, I mean, and others who, you know, I know people get very, you know, in difficult in the relationship with this stuff. But see if you can just be as present with Instagram as you were in the park. Take it in. Take in what you enjoy about it. All oh, right. You've, if you've, you've probably follow people connected with the art you do and people that you care about and people that you love or people whose work you find inspiring. So let yourself take that in. Right. Instagram. Okay, Instagram, right? And then track it. And, and just like in the park, right? If you're present and you're enjoying the park, but then if you get into some kind of, you know, judgmental mind state about someone you see in the park, you're like, oh, why would I go down that track? And you stop. That happened a lot, also. Right. Every other second. Uh huh. Judgment. So. I don't like being. I don't want whatever. Right. So <laughs> your, practice, your practice is just as available here. And if it's not, if you really feel like this is doing something that makes your practice untenable, delete Instagram. Right, what how to be kind when there is the judgment on oneself or the like it's just that second like not staying in it, just yeah. like okay, judgment, okay. Yeah. Well that you could but judgment can arise anywhere, right? In any moment. But it seems like as well as just the general sphere of judgment, you're you've got some view about what's happening in the phone that's making you feel ambivalent about it, so that when you do connect to it, you're somehow you're you're switching off. It you're feels going avoid Yeah, it feels avoided and it feels isolating. It feels like height. I mean, it feels it's so many things yeah. that happens. Yeah. For me, but so uh, I yeah. really would yeah. encourage you just to, to, to bring the same quality of presence that you bring to that looking around in the morning or that looking at the Himalayas or that looking at the, in the park mm -hmm. to looking there and see if it's any different. Make it gentler. Just and the the one other thing, just trying with the actual meditation, like. Because with the kind of going in the inside and the outside, I think I was talking to you about this a little bit on the trip, just in my brain, I'm not sure how to work that in the meditation. Like if, you know, it's getting more internal, whether physically, like it's all about my leg or it's all about some obsessive thought, I notice that and then I try to like get bigger and out there and sky. So it's kind of going mm -hmm. back and forth. Mm -hmm. But is that Well, does it seem correct? to be helpful? Um it is, it feels busy. It feels like kind of I get busy going back and forth, back and forth. Like, I don't know if that's mm. what you, in my mind during the meditation. Yeah. Does that not make sense? <laughs> it, it does make sense. I'm wondering what the busyness is because just the checking in with experience and then seeing if I'm getting tight and just softening a little bit, that doesn't, it doesn't need to be busy, right? So I'm wondering if you're trying to kind of think your way through it too so much. So like when you notice something mm. like, whatever it is, obsessive thought. Yeah. N you know, there's all these techniques over the, again, I hate that word, but, you know, thinking and then fo right. focus well, on my breath. What do we do here? Go get, expand? Well, you can, but that's a busy way to do it. Okay, so right. how? Well, what's noticing? When you notice, you're thinking about this, and then you notice, oh, I'm thinking. What's noticing? My brain. Okay. <laughs> my mind. I have no idea what my brain's doing. I, can, I, we, I work with the mind. I don't know anything about the brain. Right? But the, that which is noticing the thought is inherently spacious. Right? 
So you don't have to, you cannot create spaciousness. Any spaciousness that you create will be a puny kind of spaciousness. Right? You don't literally start thinking about space and sky. Yeah, no. No. Just see where is the space that's already here. Right? I get fixated on thought. And then I realize, oh, I'm fixated on thought. Right? The fact that I realized I'm fixated, it can only happen because there is actually a fundamental spaciousness in which the thought is going on. And I was so fixated I didn't notice. And now, right, life keeps on waking us up to that. However caught up you get in thought, every now and then you, you realize you're caught up in thought. And that moment is the moment where the fundamental immediacy of consciousness, spaciousness of consciousness, freeness of consciousness is reasserting itself. It's showing you, it's reminding you, hello, there's a lot more going on here than just your little thought world. Are you, so, but don't, in the past, I would then notice my breath again. Like, are you, you're not really suggesting us you, to you put it You can do somewhere. all that, but go slowly. Yeah. Don't be in a rush to, go, to make some space or to go to your breath. Go slowly enough so you make yourself, you let yourself see. Those moments, you know, we think of oh, meditation should just be with the breath. But no, your mind keeps going. And every time it goes and you notice that it's gone, give yourself the time to feel out the nuance of what's happening there. The whole way that experience forms, the whole nature of consciousness, the, the whole workings of the cosmos are revealing themselves, really, in every, in every time you get fixated on a, a thought and then you notice that you've been fixated. Just like really take your time. See if you can really just... Be glad to notice that you've been caught up in thought because there's this there's great depth of, of possibility and insight and freeness and understanding to find there. It's not wrong to get caught up in thought. It's the way we learn about our minds. If you never got caught up in thought, if you said, oh, let's just meditate on the breath, and everyone, okay, and nothing happened for half an hour except breathing, what would you learn about your mind? Right. Nothing. All you'd learn about is breath. It comes in, it goes out. It comes in, it goes out. So what? Right? Referring to breathing isn't to learn about breathing. It's to learn about experience. Right? So it's really, really, you know, we, we tend to reject the moments of being caught up as some sort of failure and, oh, keep going back to the breath. That's what the meditation is. But no, the breath is just, where you, is just to you have as a reference point Right? So that we, you know, we see the process of being caught up. Give ourselves something to come back to so that there is a, a coming back. So that there is a reference point for being caught up. So that there's a, 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 again and again, you know, millions of times, unfortunately, it seems to take for us, of, of just of seeing that process. Fixation, according reality and solidity to experience. Realizing that we're fixated. Seeing that it doesn't really have that much solidity or reality. Recognizing that the very fact that we've been able to know that is because we're kind of, you know, the nature of our awareness is limitlessly spacious. And then abiding freely. And that you could put into the, the terms you're talking, fine attention and vast spaciousness. Right. That's what you're doing. You're, those are just... Because I'm trying to put it into that teaching. Well, that's that a particular lens, right, that we've been yeah. looking through today to, de at, to describe the process, right? So yeah. we're giving fine attention to breath or to whatever we're getting caught up in, but we're not giving s 
if we're only giving fine attention, it all becomes about the breath and the object. I'm giving fine attention, but in a way that recognizes the very capacity to be able to give attention is born of the inherent spaciousness. So you're just looking for the way in which your awareness is already spacious, rather than trying to make it spacious. Okay. Good. Yeah. Please, Carol. Thank you. Um, I find that in many of my relationships with friends, with acquaintances, with neighbors, with colleagues, um, I uh, have become fairly reasonable, accepting, compassionate, um, you know, give people room and feel that mm -hmm. in my heart to be who they are. And I'm curious and I'm open. Um, for, for the most part, mm. I find it much more difficult, much more challenging to uh, bring those qualities uh, into my intimate relationship and yeah. in the, 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 the scrim or the scrum, whatever the word is, of you know, the give and take of uh, the daily life yeah. um, at home with, with my spouse. Um, although I'm much, much better at not um, voicing the judgments, the uh, uh, not uh, e even to a certain mm -hmm. extent controlling mm -hmm. my <coughs> the body language mm -hmm. that would suggest that I'm right and you're wrong and all of that. Good, lucky uh, spouse. What? Lucky spouse. <laughs> <laughs> but still, I, I'm aware of the judgments that arise. I'm yeah. aware of the reactivity, and although uh, also. She and I have worked on, on specific strategies for mm. stopping and mm -hmm. say, hey, you know, wait a second, you know, we're hooking here. Let, let, let's take a minute and, uh, you know, come back in a minute and, mm. and, and listen to one, one another without, without interruption. So we have strategies that are very useful, yeah. very helpful. Um, do you have any suggestions for how to enlarge even a little bit that the, the space between hmm. what arises. How long have you been together? 35 years. Oh, oh good. I would say... <laughs> yeah, I would say keep, keep going like that. <laughs> huh? Spouses are the ultimate guru. You know, it's really, it's where you the know, rubber Especially when you've been together a long time. <laughs> long time. I've been with my spouse 28 eight years. So, a bit behind you. Oh, but I get a rip of applause. As well. Right, and the, the real beauty, amidst all the, you know, the difficulties of a long-term relationship, you know, you get to see yourself in that relationship way more um, unglamorously. <laughs> <laughs> way more, way more, you know, nakedly than you do anywhere else, right? So it's normal, it's normal that that's where, because, th you know, y you, sounds like from what you're saying, you've, you've rubbed off the hard edges of your reactivity in a lot of your other relationships, right? 
you're able to be more gracious and present and, uh, and understanding than you used to be in all that. Beautiful. And your spouse is still where, you know, anything that's not rubbed off gets brought to light. How wonderful, right? If it wasn't for her, you wouldn't have that opportunity. <laughs> no, really, really, right? R right, and I tell myself that. Yeah, tell it's, her it's that too. <laughs> Thing to tell myself that, and, but that's kind of theoretical. But uh, you know, again, in, in, in the, the uh, you know the, da the daily you know rubbing up against one another, mm -hmm. the friction, mm -hmm. the tensions that arise. And I, I don't mean to say that that's all there is. Obviously, it's got to be you so much lasted. more than that, right? But uh, I find it very challenging to to reduce that and for for that relationship to uh -huh. be as. Yeah. So, if I just speak personally for a while, because I'm in a somewhat similar situation to you, maybe how to reduce is not qu quite the helpful road to go down, right? Rather than reducing, maybe how to respond to that stuff. And it sounds like that's part of what you do already. You talk about that, you point out you know, to each other, maybe a little bit you point out each other's reactivity, but more than that, you actually point out that you recognize your own reactivity, which is way more of way more use in relationship, right? Pointing out the other one's reactivity has a short shelf life, right? You don't last 35 years if that's all you point out. But when you're willing to point to your own, oh, I recognize that I'm exercised here. I still think I'm right, and I still think you, you know, shouldn't have done that or said that, but basically, I've got some self-awareness at least that, that it's, something's going on here. So it's like, oh, how can we, how can we not, not expect it to even to reduce? Right? It might reduce, it has reduced, no doubt, over time, like you say. But rather than trying to reduce it, it's just saying, how can we hold it lightly, the fact that we still get reactive with each other? How can we hold it lightly, the fact that it's the same old shit that we get reactive about? with each other. How can we hold it lightly, the fact that after 30 years, I should have got it by now that you're not really going to change <laughs> around that thing, but I still see the part of me that wants you to change and thinks you should change and wants you to, you know, you know, organize yourself to stop provoking my reactivity and then I'd be all right. You know? It's like, wow, you know? So that's what I find in, in my relationship, that our capacity to hold it lightly, so that, and when the reactivity does revert, and we find ourselves inhabiting our postures of reactivity, there's a way in which we can't take it that seriously anymore. You know? We still, it, it's still exercised, because, you know, though they're the guru. Vroom, vroom. But it's like we sort of, we can see each other nowadays through our reactivity enough to, to, to know that it's we're more interested in what's in you know in the sort of dance of our reactivity in a way and the fact that it's happening and the tendency to take ourselves seriously than we're interested in actually than the what you did or what I said or whether you did put that there or do that then or you know etc. So that seems to me just the, you know, it does reduce and you have the evidence of that, but the orientation to it, how can we, how can we hold it lightly rather than how can we reduce it with the idea that we sh eventually maybe we can reduce it down to zero? 
I don't know if there's such a thing as a human life, let alone a human relationship <laughs> with zero reactivity. Right? I've never seen one. I'd be suspicious, I think, if I did see one. It would probably be... You'd have to like uh, test the pulse, I think. <laughs> That's helpful, thank okay. you. Okay. All right, friends. Well, it's five o'clock. I'm very happy to have been here again. I'm very happy that New York Insights here. I'm always very happy to come along and teach here, and I'm very happy to have seen all of you. So, you know, New York Insights been through a uh, kind of a lot of transition and something of a bumpy ride financially and organisationally over the last months. And I'm sure those of you who are connected to London to New York Insight and London Insight, <laughs> they also go through bumpy times. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure you know you know some of that, but it's also I'm also very happy to just to kind of come here and to meet Jessica, who's the new ED, and what seems to be a new period of uh, peace and prosperity and stability. You know, let's see. But um, just the encouragement, if you know, it's a, if you value the great resource that uh, New York Insight is to find various ways of being involved. You know, it's one thing to come along and practice here is also good but also you know that making ways of finding a connection with a sense of sangha and support and exchange and all those different ways and you know people like michael being here today and kathy uh you know managing the day and the various voluntary roles and board roles and all kinds of different ways so you know it's um it's not for nothing right that sangha is one of the three jewels and sometimes we think, oh, I like Buddha, I like waking up, I like that. And Dharma practice, I like that. But I've got my own friends, right? And that's true, of course, right? And it may be that we see people here and, uh, you know, with some aspect of our demographic or our age or our location in Manhattan or wherever it is, it sort of doesn't marry. But it's worth, it's worth, you know, you have a, there's a deep commonality among these sort of shared aspirations for this kind of practice. And if you don't have that kind of, sort of deep affinity around spiritual values or aspirations or a kind of Dharma view of the world, if you don't have that in your other friendship groups or social scene, then please get the nourishment of that from somewhere here. And the fact that, that you know, the age group or, the, or the whatever demographic element might not correspond is more than compensated for by having somewhere where you can kind of talk deeply and listen deeply and reflect deeply and share deeply on things that are you know, close to your heart. So th all of that is by way of saying thank you to New York Insight for, the fact that, for inviting me and for the fact that we're all able to be here together and to thank you for your kindness and the goodness of your practice today. And I hope to see you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.